Right. Thank you. <laughs> Man, I'm excited to be here with you all tonight. I want to first uh, just express honor uh, to your pastor and to your leaders and your elders. Just thank you all for trusting me uh, with this opportunity and trusting me with the people that God have called you all to shepherd. I'm thankful uh, that I have this opportunity just to share in God's word. I really love some of those songs that we just got done singing. They talked about a lot of things that I think are pertinent in our times today. We talked about moving on uh, from our past and embracing grace. We talked about revival and all those things are much needed messages in a season where it can sometimes feel like uh, man, the church around us is uh, withering away. But can I tell you that that could be further from the truth. Uh, the church is thriving. The church is continuing to grow. And I love the fact that I get to do uh, ministry with uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes because I get to see the next generation. And I get to see how hungry uh, the next generation is for a true and authentic faith. And so I love that we got to come here and sing about that. And I just want to rest and assure you that God is working downstream, even if we aren't. That he's going to preserve his church because this is his plan A. And I'm excited to be a part of that. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive right in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you that as I stand here and get ready to share your word, we're reminded, Lord, that you are king and that you are Lord, and that despite what we're bringing into this room, God, that you're good. And so today, I just pray that that would rest in the heart of people today, that when they hear me speak, that they hear your goodness, that they hear your grace, that they hear your love. So Holy Spirit, I invite you into this room right now. You're already here, but could you just do what I can't do? Could you say what I cannot say? Could you speak to the places that I cannot speak? Could you save? Could you change? Could you redeem? Could you restore? I dedicate this time and my words to you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. We are products of our past, but we don't have to be prisoners of it. Those are words written by pastor and author Rick Warren in his book, Purpose Driven Life. What I appreciate about that quote is that it brings to light a reality that so many people live day in and day out in bondage to their past. Yes, the, the past is tremendously powerful. So much so that for me, I still find myself mad and angry and disgusted with myself that I didn't win the state wrestling tournament my senior year in high school. And you got to understand what's going on here. All right. This was a big deal. I can't believe that this sorry joker that wrestled at North Forsyth High School with a blue and green singlet. He was undefeated coming into our match at the state tournament. That, that sorry joker beat me. And I can call him sorry because I was winning by 11 points in the third period with about a minute and 30 seconds left. Four points away from the referee saying, this is over, call it off. I got tired. I'm a big boy, and he was slightly smaller than me, all right? And this joker not only beat me, but he pinned me. 
And he pinned me in front of my future college football coaches who had come to town to watch me wrestle, to see what this new prize recruit is going to look like on the football field. And here I am on my back, squirming, <laughs> trying to get air. That memory still haunts me. And every time I walk into a wrestling room, I'm a chaplain for the Bellarmine wrestling team. And every time I walk into their wrestling room, that memory comes back to me. It haunts me and it shakes me. It's because I know why it happened. I remember my coach saying, hey, Terrence, you're not going hard enough. I remember the days that I would skip out on practice and say, hey, I don't care about this. I remember the days my coach would say, hey, you're going to miss this one day. It doesn't mean anything to you today, but one day it will. And I remember sitting backstage at the state tournament, crying my eyes out like I had lost everything in the world because every word that was ever spoken to me came rushing back to me. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal. That was a wrestling match years ago. The only person that matters to is to me and that sorry joker that's a state <laughs> champion. But here's what I know. There's many of you who are just like me, haunted by moments in your past. I would imagine if we went around the room and asked everyone, what thing in your past still stings? Many would immediately have an answer. For some, it might be the words of a parent that have never left. For others, it might be the marriage that fell apart. It might be a decision you made years ago that still has a ripple effect on your life still to this day. Whether it was something you did or maybe even something that happened to you, those moments have in a major way defined you and shaped your life. With that in mind, today I want to speak on the topic and the truth that Jesus can deal with your past. I want to speak on the truth that Jesus is the perfect being, the perfect person to handle your story. Now, hearing that out loud, it sounds like a silly statement. Of course, Jesus can handle my story. He's God. Yet, yet the biggest problem for many people today it's not necessarily the head knowledge of that truth, but the heart level reliance on it. The truth is there are so many people in and outside of the faith who would, who would profess that, man, they found liberation and they found freedom from their past and from their story. But the reality of their lives and the reality of their habits and, and the reality of their decision-making would show that they still live daily cloaked in the shame and, and the disappointment of their story. If you have your Bibles, join me in John chapter 4. We're going to take a look at a story that has some similar implications. And it might be a familiar story to many of you. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. I read from the Christian Standard Bible. It's going to be here on the screen. Now, I'm going to read a bunch of scripture to you. 
And I'm going to just give you a caveat. I played football for a long time. I got hit in the head a lot. <laughs> All right? So when I, when I read this, know that I did graduate with a 3.2 GPA in college, all right? I worked really hard. All right, here we go. We're going to be in chapter 4, reading the story, and then we're going to dive in. I'll start from verse 1. It says this, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus told her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told, and come back, to, come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have answered correctly, said Jesus. For you had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I the one speaking to you, am he. Bless the reading of God's word. Mm. <sighs> Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. 
As I read and contemplate that statement, I can think of nothing more true about life than that very statement. The statement that one true encounter with Jesus has a lifetime of satisfaction. That one true drink of his water, like nothing else, fills even the deepest corners of our longing and brings truth of our past to its knees. For this lowly Samaritan woman, those words would be the beginning of life change. In a matter of a few verses, we find a woman burdened and heavy laden moved from curiosity to conversion. In a few verses, we see a life defined and torn down by a troubled past, a life surrounded by shame transformed into a testimony that still impacts lives today. What Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman does is it crushes the lie from Satan that somehow you can be too bad or, or too far off for God. What this woman's story loudly attests to is the fact that not only can Jesus handle our past, but he redeems it for good. Romans 8:28 reminds us of so much when it says this, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. What that verse means is that everything you've ever been through, everything you've ever faced, good, bad, or ugly, when we are willing to hand it over to God, he will use it for a good purpose in and through your life. And that's what we see in our text. In this one conversation, all conventional wisdom and all tradition of the time was lost. In one conversation, the, the racial reality was lost. In one conversation, the cultural division was lost. And in this one conversation, the reality of political and even religious division was lost. All for the one. For context, Jews and Samaritans, as she said, didn't like each other. Samaritan were half Jews, half Gentiles who had in many ways created their own form of Judaism. And over years, the animosity between the two groups had grown to a very hostile place. Samaritans didn't deal with Jews and, and Jews didn't deal with Samaritans. One group went to IU and the other group went to Purdue, <laughs> right? They just didn't mesh. But all jokes aside, let's, let, let's make no mistake about it. What Jesus is doing here is scandalous because on top of all the cultural animosity, Jesus was here talking with a woman, which in this day only added to the scandal. Yet as, come, yet as I come to understand the scripture, it seems to me that scandal is the heart of the gospel. The scandal is that the love of God and, and, and the hope of Jesus extends across any plane and any hurt and any division. It's the truth that his living water can fill any valley left by our past. And I'll say it again, not only can Jesus handle our past, but he redeems it for good. In order for this to happen, we must play ball and, and be willing to journey with Jesus, though. The Samaritan woman's story gives us a peek at what this would look like. So with that in mind, tonight for the rest of my time, I just want to share four ways 
that me and you and everybody else in the world, that we can join God in reconciling our past for peace in the present. Number one, don't let your past devalue relationship. Don't let your past devalue relationship. As we read for this Samaritan woman, it is clear that so much of her life had been defined by her past or at least the consequences of it. Whether by choice of her own or, or by force of the culture, what I notice in her story is isolation and condemnation. I see a, a woman who walks alone. Most commentators point out for this woman to come along and choose noon, the hottest part of the day, to go draw water is a sign that, that she likely chose this intentionally to avoid interaction with other people because in that time, people usually went in groups early in the morning to get water. It was a social trip. And for her, she chose the hottest part of the day and walked alone. I don't know what caused her to walk alone, but, but maybe the cultural shame or, or maybe her inner thoughts had convinced her that doing life alone was the safest bet. If we want to be people who truly partner with God in his work in our life, we must, we must resist the pull to be isolated. And we must know, as Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love how Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 puts it when it talks about our need for community. It says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Church, you were made for relationship. You were created for relationship horizontally and vertically. God created you in his image and God is a relational being. He wants relationship with you. And then when he created man, he said, hmm, it's not good for this man to be alone. So he created a woman or another person, a companion, a friend, a helper to do life. So if the first human beings couldn't do life alone, what makes you think you can do life alone? You were made for community. And if you're in this room or if you're watching online and, and you're struggling with something, because I know sometimes the things we struggle with can keep us away. Can I tell you that there is no better place to struggle than in the house of God with other people running full speed after Jesus? There's no better place. So don't allow the enemy to win. Don't allow your shame to convince you. There are a lot of people in this room with that same story that if you would just stick around long enough, you would hear the redemption of God in their lives. Don't isolate yourselves. Lean into community. You are made for it. Number two, 
Don't allow your thirst to keep you in the past or to remain your story. Don't allow your thirst to keep you in the past or to remain your story. When it comes to thirst, the Samaritan woman knew all about it. Five husbands later, and what was left inside of her was a God-sized hole only Jesus could fill. Five times in her life, she thought she had found hope in relationship, and five times, for whatever reason, her hope died. Each time, I'm convinced her thirst grew until she got to a point where maybe you've heard this before, something was better than nothing. So she settles for less with this sixth illegitimate husband. Yet Jesus looked all that square in the eye and said, I have something better. For somebody in the room, maybe that's what you need to hear tonight. Maybe what you need to hear is that Jesus has living water. He has something better. He has something that will never allow you to go thirsty again. Maybe you need to hear that something isn't better than nothing. Maybe you need to hear that that something in your life is the, is the enemy coming to kill, steal, and destroy. And then you also need to hear that, but God, God wants to give his children life and life to the fullest. And so that something at the job is not better than the nothing at home in God's hands. That something on the computer screen is not better than the nothing in your marriage bed in God's hands. That something that you can smoke just to feel a little better is not better than the anxiety or the depression that you feel in God's hands. That is a lie from the enemy who is looking to steal your hope and kill your joy and to destroy the life that God has left for you to live here until he calls you home. And you have to allow it to rest into your spirit, even in the hard times that I have a faithful God that desires to give me life and life to the full. So I will stand firm and I will wait on the Lord because I'm convinced that if he did it before, if he saved me from the pit, that he'll do it again. But we have to believe that. We have to know it. You know, it's a funny story. Um, I went to college, and one of the first things my mom told me was, when you go to college, she gave me a long list of things not to do, all right? All right, I grew up going to church a lot. Like, my mom got saved when I was, like, 11 or 12. And so we went from, like, her partying and me, like, us being in the back room playing PlayStation with, like, our play cousins to like being at church five days a week. Drastic change at age 12. I'm like, man, what's going on? I want to play Madden, not learn about Noah's Ark. I'm 
But she gave me a long list, and one of the things on her list said, when you go to college, don't you go up there and get no tattoos. And the first thing I did was I got two of them. <laughs> and I'm going I'm to just, just call it like it is. When I was 18 years old, I was an idiot. And so I had a buddy say, man, I got this guy who gives football players cheap tattoos. I should have knew. I didn't, I'd never been to a tattoo shop, but I, so I didn't know what to expect. And we go to this guy's house, and there's like a little trailer, Winnebago trailer in the back of the house, and that's the tattoo shop. He said, anything you want, $40. I'm like, oh, that's cheap. <laughs> so I go, and I sit down, and I don't know what I want. And so I say, you know what? My mama's going to be mad at me, so I'm, I'm going to get two crosses, and I'm going to put scriptures on there. So I got two, my first two tattoos are here and here. And... John 4.14 is right here on my arms. I said, and this is God and his truth. I said, everybody gets John 3.16. I want John 4.14. <laughs> Had no clue what the scripture meant. <laughs> God and his truth. I had a Christian bookstore business card. And that scripture was on that business card. And I said, put it right here, baby. But can I tell you something? God uses our dumb decisions for his good. Because every time I looked in the mirror, I was reminded that I was created for something different. And every time I woke up from the hangover, I had to look in the mirror and I saw the scripture and I vaguely knew that it talked about not being thirsty again. And then it all came to head to me one morning probably 20 years old, three years into school, and I woke up in a McDonald's parking lot. I'm in this McDonald's parking lot, my car is parked, my car is running, and it's like 5 a.m. And I wake up and I'm like, okay, what happened here? I had no memory of how and why I went to the McDonald's. I know why I went to the McDonald's, but I have, <laughs> I have no memory of actually going to this McDonald's. And as the day went on, I started piecing the story together, talking, to my, talking with my friends. Here's the story. I was out drinking with my teammates who had a house that they rented deep in the country in Georgia. So we had to go down all these dark country roads to get to it so the sheriff wouldn't show up. And we would party all night and then trickle back into town. Somehow, I grabbed my car, Drove 10 miles back into town, drove two extra miles to take my best friend home, and then drove to the McDonald's. I didn't have a car wrecked, didn't kill anybody. Police officer didn't see me. Nobody stole my car just sitting in this parking lot with me asleep. Nobody rolled up on me and said there's a, a, a drunk driver behind a wheel. In that moment, I felt the strong sense that God's hand was on my life. And in that moment, I realized that my thirst was driving my life. The cheap thrill almost ruined my life. And that moment began the journey of God arresting my heart and arresting my soul and calling me back to himself. And he put uh, people down the road a little further than me in the faith into my life. And I started going to Bible studies. And long story short, within a year, man, I was saved and I was living on mission on campus. But I can tell you, 
It was God's sovereign hand on my life, constantly reminding me that your thirst is going to get you killed. And he let me get close enough to it to realize that he was right. And I don't know, but maybe, maybe somebody in here, your thirst is just getting you closer and closer to that line of destruction for your life. And if you keep going down the path, what you're doing is going to destroy your family. It's going to destroy the marriage you've had for 25 years. It's going to cause you to lose your business if you just do your taxes wrong one more time. God is saying, don't allow your thirst to drive your life, but know that I have something better if you would just drink it. Number three, don't allow your past to keep you in debt. Don't allow your past to keep you in debt. Without a doubt, one of the most important and amazing pieces to the story is the fact that she left that conversation changed. As we get towards the end of that conversation, if you keep reading that chapter, it's clear that the skepticism from early in the passage had been replaced with submission and life change had begun to take root. I mean, even from verses 19 to 26, we see a woman go from confusion to conviction to conversion. From those verses, we see a woman go from death to life in Christ. Of course, she didn't understand every implication, but she did understand that Jesus and his way was just simply better. And here's the truth. Many of us know that Jesus' way is just simply better. We know it. We've tasted it. We've seen it. But here's what also, there's somebody in this room that needs to be your story. You haven't tasted and seen it yet. At the moment, you're letting everything you did wrong in the past keep you in major debt. And I can promise you it's a debt that you could never pay on your own. I don't care how much cleaning up you do. I don't care how many classes you go to. I don't care how many bottles you put down. I don't care how many times you come in here. You can't do it on your own. But on the other side of that coin is a God who sees you. It's a God who loves you. There's a God who's, who's more patient than you, than you can ever imagine and, and more gracious than you ever deserve. And he's handing you a free gift of salvation right here, right now, tonight, only if you would receive it. In Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in John 3, 17, the Bible tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And if you sit in this room and you haven't accepted that truth, if you haven't received this gracious God in your life, I got a one-word question for you. Why? Why? Can I just let you in on a secret? If you're in this room, God is already working in your life. And every day that you resist is another day that you're delaying the experience of life in the expanse of his love. 
He wants to welcome you, and we, we live in horse country. He wants to welcome you into the expanse of his love, this beautiful field where you can run in freedom, but there's only one way in, and that's through his grace, his life, his death, his resurrection. He says, the only work I have for you is to believe. So why? What's holding you back? Yet still for some, that same God that you once knew is standing ready to hand you restoration. Maybe you've already said yes to Jesus, but in your estimation, you messed up too bad. Whether it was last night, last year, or last decade, the God of faithfulness remains and says to you what Jesus said in Matthew 11, come, you who are heavy and burdened, and let me give you rest. He's calling you to believe Hebrews 4.16 when it says this, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. This is what he says. He says, there we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Nothing you have done has relinquished you from the love of God. If you said yes to Jesus, you are his. Come home. There's nothing to be afraid of. The book of Hebrews teaches us that we have a, a, a high priest that is greater than any sin, any system. That he both pre presents the sacrifice and himself is the sacrifice for you and you and me. And when he did that, he initiated a new system. He got rid of the old system that, that kept a chart of your sins and gave you a American Express black card of grace. He said, I know you're going to mess up. That's why I did it this way. Come home. Receive God's grace. Number four, use your past for his pleasure. Use your past for his pleasure. When reading this story, it just blows my mind how quickly her tide had changed. As I said, it was just about 20 verses, a short conversation. Like I read it in two minutes. But in two minutes, a woman went from walking alone and in shame and walking in separation. She did a 180. And instead of avoiding people because of her story, we read that she, she runs towards people with a story. I won't, I won't have it on the screen, but let me just read to you what happens. She has this encounter with Jesus with all her baggage 
Then it says this. It says, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. Get this. Samaritan Jews don't like each other. Samaritans are now coming to say, stay with us. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Her story, her past became a conduit for somebody else's life to change. Her throwing off shame, her throwing off pride, and her being a willing vessel in the hands of God led to many in a town that hated Jesus because of his ethnicity come to faith. That's powerful. And my question is, is this you? Are you vulnerable enough to tell the bad? (laughs) Are you vulnerable enough to tell the hard story so that your neighbor might appreciate the good in your life? Listen, your story matters because God redeemed it. And whether you believe today or not, someone out there needs your story. They need to hear of your perseverance through doubt and depression. They need to hear the story of your marriage restoration. They need to know you battle with addiction still today, but God is good. They need to know that you are an imperfect, broken human being that God, because of his love, saw fit to save and someone he values because just maybe, just maybe the God that they imagine in their brain is too little or too unforgiving for their story. And the big God that you know shines brightest in our weakness. They need to hear and know your story. But before they can hear your story, you have to accept the gift of your story. Now, I can know that that may be hard for some of you. Having a preacher up here who don't know nothing about your life telling you that you need to accept the gift of your story when some terrible things have happened to you. I'm not telling you that the things that happen to you are a gift. I'm telling you that despite the things that happen to you, your life is a gift. Your life matters. Your story matters. I love this quote from a British evangelist from the 1900s. He was encouraging the people of his time to get busy for the kingdom. He says this, there is some task which the God of all the universe, the great creator, your redeemer in Jesus Christ has for you to do and which will remain undone and incomplete until by faith and obedience you step into the will of God. 
Think about that. That text is basically saying, until you do what you're supposed to do, somebody's going to be unsaved. Until you share your faith with your siblings, they probably won't come to faith. I don't understand the mystery of God and how it works, but I do know that he created this plan that we have to carry our weight and somehow that impacts somebody else. One of my favorite Christian hip-hop artists has a line that I love. He says, some people say I do too much. But he said, but I'd rather do that than Jesus come back and say, hey, you didn't do enough. I'd much rather you go out here and do too much than to sit on your hands and not do enough to see Southern Indiana find revival. As I close in prayer, just want to say this. I know just a few weeks ago you all spent about five or so weeks looking at two verses in Romans 12, and I just want to read those to you again. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It also says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and perfect will. Read that to you because if you've been redeemed in the Lord, then anything other than proclaiming his goodness through your past, despite your past or in light of your past, is likely you being conformed towards the shame culture of this world. Whether it's the hypercritical religiosity or your longing for acceptance in our hyper-canceling world, here's my charge to you. Be transformed in your mind and in your spirit about your story just as sure as your story has been changed. And I want you to believe deep down inside that God has something good. He has something pleasing and something perfect in his will to use every part of your story for the good of somebody else. We already got a big family, but I think God wants us to have a bigger one. So let's get busy. Let's give our stories over to God, even the ugly part, even the hard parts. Do what's necessary for you to do that. You may need to go to counseling for a little while before you, before you can really do that. Do that. Maybe you just need to write down your story for the first time in your life. Write it down. But just know that God wants to redeem every part of it for his good and for his glory. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of this Samaritan woman who met you at a well. She came thirsty. She came broken. She came needy. 
She left field. She left testifying. She left pouring out, came with an empty bucket and left pouring out living water to others. God, may that be our story every Sunday that we come into this place. No matter how we come in, whether we come in with an empty bucket or our bucket is full, that we leave this place spilling over the brim, giving other people the living water of your grace and your love. Lord, penetrate the deep recesses of our minds and of our hearts and call us all to surrender. Call us all to the necessary work to truly experience your freedom. Father God, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your redemption. We are nothing without you. You're always good and you're always righteous and you're always faithful. For that, we say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.